Welcome to episode 37 of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Like, it's so gloomy outside. It feels like it's already 8 p.m. and it's only like 3. I'm ready to go take a nap. I feel like we never start our intros on a positive light. No, we're so tired. We're always complaining about something, but it's the truth, you guys. Like, I really thought like having that day off on Thursday and chilling with the family and forcing myself to stay home and not do anything was like me basically hitting the reset button on my sleep cycle and just like refreshing myself. But I am 10 times more exhausted than I was before Thursday. It's like whenever you do get a day off, you have to like catch up on everything that you've been pushing aside because of work. That's how I feel, at least like when I'm home. I feel guilty just chilling like I have to get up I have to clean I have to do the laundry I have to cook dinner like it's like one thing after the other it's not like you really don't have time to just chill anymore like when was the last time you actually sat down and like Netflix and chilled you're really passionate about this I am so passionate because I feel like I'm not trying to blame my husband but like before I got married I had all the time in the world to just chill but I don't have a husband and I don't have an all the time in the world everybody always thinks the grass is greener on the other side married or not this or that but it's truly not like I have no kids Zaina no responsibilities (laughs) no house no nothing so obviously in my mom's eyes I'm a failure but I (laughs) I still don't have any time to do anything so crazy and I don't know why like like are we not good with time management I know that what the hell is it I that's like I think my biggest downfall hopefully no potential job offers are like listening to this but like my my worst downfall (laughs) my biggest weakness is time management Ooh, that's like I'm really bad with it I don't know what it is for me to be honest I just I I don't know I I feel like because I feel like we have two full-time jobs right now something that we never thought we would sign up for but it is you know unless somebody somehow sponsors us and we can quit our actual corporate jobs like seriously (laughs) do you guys not want to invest in two amazing Muslim women here but uh, on a serious note, um, well, not actually on a serious note, I just came back from the Palestine convention that AMP hosted, and I'm always in awe of the women that are always on the stage, that are talking, and they're, and I just love their speeches. I got to witness um, Rashida Tlaib again, and I, I love her story. And I loved it, you know why? Because I think it's nice, because I brought my mom with me, and sometimes when I bring my mom to these events, like, my mom understands English, but not when somebody's speaking it so quickly and everything, she's not fluent in it, fluent in it. So when Rashida was kind of saying this hilarious story she was going back and forth between english and arabi and it was just nice not having to translate it to my mom everything yeah because imagine your mom's just sitting in the audience and she feels lost and everybody's laughing out loud and she's not like i don't know my heart breaks for her every time that happens i get that but it's it's just so cool that we have these high political women who can appeal to both us and like the older generation in one conversation i'm not even exaggerating i honestly almost like came to tears seeing her on stage i don't i think it's just it's a huge deal seeing seeing like not only is she an arab woman not only is she a muslim but she's like a palestinian woman a congresswoman like it's so crazy we're very fortunate to see that in our lifetime so it makes me at least that i can say that makes me happy to when we have kids you that at least they'll see more of this they're never gonna have to go through they're gonna have their own set of problems obviously but they're never gonna have to go through the trouble that we went through as kids like we never had those role models in those high places but they will and i think that's just so freaking incredible and it makes me so proud it it really does so that's why i'm saying i I really enjoyed the amp palestine convention i always just i'm like so proud of them for always putting it together and it's it's i love conventions i love going there seeing people and connecting with people and meeting new women and just listening to their stories and all that good stuff but of course there's always a downfall for everything i don't know do you want to 
So Alhamdulillah, Dunya and I are so grateful that throughout this entire process, we've received so much support from our community. We have people wanting to collaborate with us, women leaving incredible reviews, sharing our posts, and it's we, it makes us feel so blessed. But then we have the other side of it, where a small percentage of women who are out there saying that they want to collaborate, they want to work with other women, but it's not the case when they're in our DMs trying to bully us into not doing what we're doing right now. So obviously we don't want to go too much into details, but I feel like there are probably other entrepreneurs out there, other creatives out there who probably have faced similar struggles. Like I, me and Zaina actually both are not here for bullying whatsoever. And I think this person thought that maybe we are somebody that they can easily like kind of put us in a corner, tell us you are not allowed to collaborate with this person because that's what it was. They didn't want us collaborating with a certain someone because supposedly they were collaborating with them behind the scenes. The thing is, Zaina and I, I'm sorry, like we owe nobody anything other than sharing the stories of women in an authentic manner, making sure that we do it in a very tasteful way. And if somebody wants to collaborate with us, we're always here for that, like 100 percent, especially this is an organization that we've collaborated with in the past and whatnot. So this person didn't like that idea because they didn't like the fact that what they were given in regards to the collaboration was similar to the details, the terms and conditions that we had for this collaboration. So I couldn't help but tell this person, like, this is not a conversation to be had with us. Secondly, your mission statement is all about supporting women. So I'm so confused as what's going on right now in the DMs. And the old me, this is why I'm saying, Zaina, like, I thank you for this. The old me would have kept going head to head with this girl. But in my head, like, you you just popped up. And I remember you saying, like, just don't give anybody the time and energy, especially somebody that you can communicate with someone. But the most important thing is if they're not comprehending what you're saying. Exactly. You're wasting your time. I'm letting you know anybody that if you know that it's something that you're saying is not getting to their head, it's not getting to them at all. Stop what you're doing right now. That's it. I'm always afraid that people want us to get riled up and they want us to say something mean or say something bad. And I've been in that position before where I've been in arguments and some things just slip out and I never want to be in that position again. So I have learned that like, if you're upset, take a step back, calm down, and then you can approach it with a clearer head. And I just want to say, if it wasn't for this platform and I wasn't so passionate about passionate about what we're doing, it would be easy for me to back down. It would be so easy to be like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm getting bullied, blah, blah, blah. But because I'm so passionate about our statements and about our mission and about what we're doing, it makes me more passionate about not letting women like that or people like that put us in a corner and kind of like bully us until we're, we're done. I don't think you and I were ever exposed to this side of just that cattiness, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but like I said, this is just one person. And, and I don't know, this is how I am. I give people the paintbrush and the paint set and I allow them to paint a picture of themselves. And I usually do give people a second chance depending upon what they did to me to harm me. Sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes it's a mistake. But when you're showing me your real true colors in the sense of like you're a whole different person behind the scenes and what you're trying to portray, I cut you off. So I've completely cut this relationship off with this um, woman because I'm just I don't support her how she approached us. I don't support the fact that she literally sent us a whole essay in the DMs explaining why that we have copied her, that we are doing this on purpose and this and that. It was it was 
kind of sad. I really felt bad for her because this isn't the first time that I've heard this about her. And I'm not here. And the thing is, you have to understand, you're not here to try to save everyone. You're not here to try to change somebody's mindset. They're going to learn on their own. So I'm not going to waste my time and energy anymore on people like that. I just cut ties completely with yeah, that person. And it's disappointing because I feel like our mission statement is we want to lift other women up. And it doesn't make sense to me when others come up to us and try to push us down. Like, we're not here for that. We're we don't not going to allow that, that to it's happen. Just, like, I can't believe, like, I was just, I think, and this is another thing. This is another learning lesson. Some, a lot of people can have an issue with one person, but I don't advise you to assume that about that person. I think you need to see it for yourself. And I finally, we both finally got to see it for ourselves, what she's truly about. Right. So I, I the only reason why we're sharing this in our like episode is just I want people to be a little bit more cautious and I want people to have a little bit more uh, faith in themselves. Don't allow anybody to bully you out of anything that you know you're not doing anything wrong in. You know right, what I mean? Exactly. Especially when you already like kind of this the, this other organization wanted to collaborate with you. They chose to collaborate with you. Do not let anybody else bully you out of the blessings that are coming your way. You know what I mean? Some people can't handle that. And and then the thing is we also have been told, oh, well, it's because you guys are so successful and she can't handle that and then I just I sat and thought to myself like the old me would have been like yeah that's why haters isn't that like an Eminem quote like you know I don't know ex the exact probably because I love Eminem so maybe like, yeah like you know you're doing well if you have haters yeah but, but the, I don't like that I don't exactly yeah. I think we've evolved Dana where I don't want haters so when I sit there and I'm not I don't want to base our success off of seeing how many people try to kind of down, tear yeah. us down to me it, what that means what that translates into that our community has still a lot more work to do if, if we do because it's kind of scary that her platform is all about supporting women but here she is in our DMs like behind the scenes attacking us and it just it scares me because then and it also scares me in the sense of like Zane and I you and I are strong um, I wonder how many other people she does this to that do truly back down and do fear like fear and her in a way each other that that's the yeah. thing. We have each other to kind of talk this out with. But if it's one person that's being bullied by this lady, it's not as easy to like confront them or stand up for themselves if it's just one person. And that's like you said, it scares me because yeah. how many people have left their passion projects, left what they're doing because they're being bullied out of it? perfectly said Zaina. Yeah. so i i'm sorry like you and i don't like confrontation confrontation I either don't. I don't. um we're not gonna obviously mention her name or anything like that but i just want anybody that does go through this to really think about it think twice do not let anybody just bully you out of anything Especially or bully you into a corner passionate about it like if it's your passion like stick with it yeah and if you're doing something right but for this week's episode, I kind of want to transition into that. It's a pretty serious topic. We've had um, episodes about infertility before, and you and I have noticed, Dana, there's like there, everybody brings their own perspective to um, a certain right. hardship that they're facing, and I like think that we could talk about the same thing so many times but each time we're going to get a different perspective it's a different story obviously i feel like this guest really let down all of her walls and she let us into her world and i remember recording this and um having to step out because it was just a, it's a lot so it, we recorded it you guys like a little over a month ago we're just releasing it and that. i've said it this september in, yeah. yeah and i said this in a snap where you know we always want to make sure our guests are in the right headspace and we want to make sure that they're prepared for us to be able to release an episode because again it's public you know what i mean obviously we don't have millions of listeners but we do have a good mashallah amount of listeners tuning into our episodes but for this week's guest we have pari and i'm pretty sure you guys know her from her instagram account which is essential steps um i love how she's very open and honest through her captions and she 
shares a lot and she shared her infertility journey with everybody. And now, alhamdulillah, she brought in a beautiful baby boy into this world. Mashallah, he's the cutest, cutest little he one. Is, and I think when you and I seen her post, we were just so elated and we were so happy because I think we knew her story and now to finally see her happy and see what she really truly deserves as a baby, it makes us happy. I remember, I think I was at work, I was driving home or something and you texted me and I remember like almost crying. Like I was like, thank God, alhamdulillah. Like I felt as if it was like, my baby that's how happy I was for her and I, you know why because I think we developed a connection with her but for those of you who don't know much about Puri uh, she was born in Kabul Afghanistan where both of her parents are from and her mom's family is from Russia and her dad's heritage is half Syrian and half Afghan so she grew up in Nashville and spent half of her life in the DC NYC area after moving to DC for school and a clinical research fellowship at the NIH she also has an undergrad at Vanderbilt uh, where she majored in cognitive neurobiology and and French. And she also also had several years of grad school at GW and Georgetown, where she got a dual master's in biochemistry and molecular biology, followed by a PhD program in neuroscience. I don't know about you, but our guests make me want to go back to school because <laughs> I am not okay with just my bachelor's degree in accounting. No. <laughs> well, mashallah, she's amazing. And currently, she's a clinical and market researcher. She focuses on oncology and cardiovascular disease and stroke. And her current passion is women's health, photography, and travel I love her traveling photos they're so beautiful so colorful Um, she's all about social justice reform immigrant rights fashion and I love the fact that she loves coffee as much as me. Zaina, you're not included in no, this I'm club. Sorry. I'm like outside of the coffee club. Yeah. And right now at this moment, she's just really just elated and so happy and spending so much time with her newborn baby, mashallah. And I just love seeing the photos that she's sharing. But she's also being open about her postpartum that she's dealing with currently. So uh, I hope you guys can send her well wishes. Yes, I feel like, do. Yeah, I feel like your identity completely changes when you become a mother. But it's not a bad thing, but it's something that you just have to adjust to. Right, so absolutely. Um, this episode was recorded while she was pregnant, you guys. Like she was, I think, just a few weeks or a few days shy of giving birth. So she's going to talk to us about her miscarriage journey. She's had a couple miscarriages, um, her infertility issues and her issues with IVF. So she has gone through a lot, a lot. You know what right. I mean? This is a it's a very heavy, heavy conversation, but it's such an important one because you see the struggle that she went through, the fact that she never gave up, like she kept trying because she knew she wanted this. You guys, please give this episode a listen, but I want to put a little disclaimer out there. I sound like Mickey Mouse in this episode. Oh, I forgot that part. <laughs> yeah, so I, this was um actually one day after my deviated septum surgery. And so I do sound a little Donald Ducky- Minnie Mouse, Minnie I said. Mouse. Like, I just sound, but listen, like, just ignore my voice. I hope I didn't talk this much in that voice. Zena's lying. Episode. It's not about DVA septum. She just wanted a nose job, but I just, yeah. <laughs> excuse me. Um, but please just ignore my voice and just really listen to it because you guys, Perry is someone that I think we can all learn something from when it comes to never giving up. Yeah. Let's dive in, Zena. Let's do it. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you guys, it's never too late to join our unfiltered book club. And if you want to stay up to date, all you have to do is just check our Instagram post, 
or snaps. And as an added bonus, we have Audible who is sponsoring our episode, which means that you guys can get the book for free. You can download it on your phone for free. And alongside that downloadable book, you get a 30 day membership. All you have to do is just go to www.audibletrial/unsweetened and you guys can get started today. I am actually an avid Audible user. I listen to books all the time as I'm driving or even at the gym whenever I can. I'm a millennial, so multitasking is in my genes. Um, remember, you guys can download the book for free at www.audibletrial.com unsweetened. And remember to keep up to date with our Instagram posts where we'll be updating you guys about the book club. Now let's really get into today's episode. Thank you so much, Pri, for uh, joining us today on this week's episode. I mean, you are, alhamdulillah, knock on wood, a few days, inshallah, away from giving birth. And I feel like I'm starting from the end. How about we start from the very beginning and start with your married life and how you met your husband? Yeah, absolutely. So my husband's Australian and he was in D.C. for work several years ago when we met randomly. And I'm the first person in my family to marry someone outside of our culture. So it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> and what are you, Pretty? What's your background? Um, so I'm from Afghanistan, but my mom is Uzbek and Russian, and my dad is Afghan and Syrian of wow. descent. Nice. Girl, yeah. you are mixed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so you guys, what, married at the age of what? Like- 31. Yeah, I was 31. He's actually a year and a half younger than me. So he wasn't even 30 when <laughs> we got married. How about we go into when it comes to getting married, I think the last thing we think about are those serious conversations. And of course, these serious conversations kind of come up after marriage. But did you guys ever sit down in like your engagement period and talk about like the process of having kids when you guys want to have them, how many and all that good stuff? Or did you were you guys just in the honeymoon phase the whole entire time until you got married? Yeah, so when we first um, got engaged, we had very briefly talked about wanting to have kids. And we both knew we were on the same wavelength, just in general, that we wanted a family, but we never talked about the details or how many we wanted until after we got married. And then in your situation, pretty something unexpected happened that you never thought that you would even go through this. Do you want to start from there and talk about when you wanted to try to first get pregnant and how that went for you? I think, you know, when you're newly married and you're thinking about starting a family, the last thing you think about is everything that could go wrong. You just have all these hopes and all this excitement. Um, Again, I was 31 when we got married. We didn't start trying until about a year after our wedding. So we wanted to have that first year to really get to know each other, live together, travel a little bit. We were both working a lot. And then it was our honeymoon, which was delayed a year when we first started trying and we were able to get pregnant right away, it seemed like such a blessing. I never in a million years thought that we would have issues with it. So my expectation was go in, start a family, have your first kid, wait a couple of years and have another one. And then unfortunately, yeah, it didn't go that way. Yeah, I think no one really expects it to go the wrong way. You know what I mean? No one expects to get into marriage and to have issues getting pregnant. I think we all just think it's simple because, I mean, looking at our parents' generations, we didn't see issues with with conceiving um, as often as we see it nowadays. So I don't think, you know, we all have that expectation that like we can get pregnant right away. We're going to wait the year. The year will be enough for us to get to know each other and then boom, we'll get pregnant. And I think we all just have these ideas in our head that aren't 
able to live up to and i don't know i'm struggling with this like is it was this always the case from back in the day but people just didn't talk about it too often or is this happening more frequently frequently where women are you know having a hard time getting pregnant or even just like going through miscarriages like i just don't know what it is that's maybe a good point that's something i, I yeah. can look further into Puri, did you want to go into like the whole how you dealt with the first pregnancy and how how things kind of went wrong for you and like when you found out that it was not going to be a full-term baby yeah so I actually do also want to touch on what you guys just said which is super important I think our parents generation you didn't hear about it one it's really taboo to talk about that especially in our culture um, people aren't very open about their fertility issues or any type of women's health issues really especially in that generation so even if it did happen it's likely that they would be too embarrassed or shy um, to talk about that and let us know that, hey, this is the reality that some people might face. I think that wasn't the case in my situation. Alhamdulillah, everyone in my family had many, many children, all of my aunts, uncles, everyone, nobody had any miscarriages that had never been an issue. So again, it's the last thing that we expected because we had no reason to expect that anything could go wrong. Um, so when I came back from my honeymoon, about two weeks later, we found out we were pregnant and we were so excited. Honestly, we just couldn't believe how lucky we were. We went to um, our first OB appointment. It was about five and a half, six weeks. So it was really early. And it was just to confirm the pregnancy, which she did via ultrasound and blood work. And she didn't see a heartbeat at the time, but she said that's totally normal it's really early. Sometimes you don't see it until seven or eight weeks. So why don't you come back in two weeks? We went back two weeks later and again, super excited. We're like, we're finally going to see our baby's heartbeat. And this is going to really make it feel even more real than it already is. And as we, as I lay there on the table in her office, um, I just saw her face change from excited and hopeful to just crestfallen. And she turned around and looked at us and said, I'm so sorry. I am so, so sorry. There is no heartbeat. And then I just looked at her, I was like, okay. <laughs> she goes, I'm really sorry. I'm going to step out and give you guys a few minutes to talk about this before we come back and discuss what you want to do. And I looked at her, I was like, Dr. Marco, it's totally fine. Like, we'll come back in two weeks. You'll see it then. And it wasn't until she repeated it that it hit us. It wasn't just a technical issue. It was the fact that we had lost the baby. I was in shock. My husband was devastated. I think when I saw how upset he was, I had never seen him react negatively to anything. He's always very positive and composed and sees the good in everything in life. He was just crying. He couldn't control himself. His emotions were just all over the place. I knew I had to step up and be the strong one. So I tried to calm everyone around me and reassure them, hey, this is okay. Don't worry about it. I'm sure, you know, this is just a one-time fluke. We'll be okay. We'll get through this. We'll figure this out. And I even drove us home that day going through a missed miscarriage because I knew that I had to be the strong one and keep hope alive. And I, I think my faith, my iman had a lot to do with that. I kept telling myself everything happens for a reason. I firmly believe that, you know, I, I grew up with, a strong Muslim faith and Allah doesn't test us with things that we can't handle. So I kept telling myself, this is just one of those tests from Allah and inshallah, like the next time it'll be okay. I, I know you were shocked with the way your husband reacted. Why do you think it hurt him so much? Why he broke down? I mean, 
were you guys really super excited that this is your first baby? And I think this is probably the last thing that would have ever came up across his mind dealing with a loss. Yeah, it, it really was. This was the first one. And again, I think both of us knew we wanted at least a couple of kids. So given my age, given the timeline, it was a big shock that this is going to set us back. And, you know, when you first hear you're pregnant, even at five, six, seven weeks, everything in your mind and your life suddenly changes. All of a sudden, you're no longer thinking about yourselves. You're thinking about this little baby and the future. And you have so much hope, like you literally put all your eggs in a basket. <laughs> um, you know, we were replanning our lives. We were already started talking about listing our, we had a small one bedroom condo in DC at the time. We already started talking about listing it for sale and getting a bigger place um, somewhere a little more family friendly and just readjusting everything in our world. And then it was a huge disruption to all of those plans we were working around. I do want to point out, I think that partnership of you and your husband, you lifting your husband up when he was down, that's so important to realize, you know, it would have made it so much worse on him if he saw you react the same way that he was reacting. And I just love that you were able to be there for him and pick him up, even though you were going something, going through something as well. I think it's so important that we are there for our spouses. And when it comes to like the post miscarriage, what happens after that? Here you are sitting in the doctor's office and she's saying there is no heartbeat. What are the next steps? How did you face them? And what did you expect to happen after? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, she walked through the different options with us. She basically said, we can schedule a DNC, which is a an outpatient surgical procedure to remove the fetus from the uterus. And then it has a pretty quick recovery period, or she said you can wait for the miscarriage to happen naturally. And then she said the third option is if that doesn't happen and you still want to go through with the more natural process we can induce, which is similar to inducing labor. They give you drugs that are, um, at the time I didn't realize, very, very harsh and invasive. <laughs> and that, that gets you to expel the fetal tissue. So I wanted to do the natural miscarriage I was hoping that my body would realize that I was no longer pregnant and be able to expel the fetus itself. I also felt like that would give me more closure. I didn't want to terminate my pregnancy forcefully. I was really hoping that everything would happen on its in its own time. Um, I waited three weeks and it didn't go away. My belly kept growing bigger. My HCG levels, which indicate pregnancy, kept rising. I looked like I was in my second trimester of pregnancy. I felt like I was pregnant. I had all the symptoms because in my, to my body, it looked like I was still pregnant. At that point, I started developing some infections and inflammation. So I knew that we had to take action. So my doctor said it's too late to do a DNC, but we can induce. So they gave me a medication to induce. And I basically went through almost 18 hours of what feels like labor wow. without any medication, any pain. And that was the point where I think I broke down physically and emotionally. And um, before we did that, I actually started telling myself, maybe I shouldn't take any interventions, which is why I waited so long for the miscarriage to happen. I started thinking maybe the doctors are wrong. I think all of that strength that I built up at the start of hearing this news started to melt away as I saw my body react towards the pregnancy as I felt more and more pregnant every day. I couldn't imagine letting go of this pregnancy. And it was just, it's such a mind trip that I knew from a medical perspective that this fetus isn't 
alive, it's not viable. But I convinced myself that maybe it is, maybe all of the doctors are wrong. Maybe they're just not, maybe their ultrasound equipment is messed up, you know? Yeah, which is why I didn't want to go through with anything until I reached the point where I physically had to. And it was, it was tough. It was the hardest thing physically and emotionally I've ever gone through. You know, thank God I had my husband and his support. He sat there with me for the entire process, held my hand, told, told me I looked beautiful when I looked like an absolute mess. Like I looked disgusting. <laughs> That's what husbands are for. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I looked in the mirror at one point and I almost screamed, not from the pain, but from what I looked like. Wow. <laughs> like. I didn't know a human being could look like this. Imagine Charlize Theron and Monster, but like 10 times worse. Girl, that's impossible. I'm looking at you oh, right yeah. now, Michelle. Like you're like a natural beauty. No, stop. It's just, it's just so, you, you, you hit it on the nail. It's so traumatizing. Here are the doctors telling you it's not alive, but here's your body saying it might be alive because you felt it. You felt like, not that the baby was moving or anything like that. It's too early on, but you, your body was going, your body was changing. How much of an effect does this have on your mind? and just like your mental health in that instance yeah it's crazy I mean you walk around and you see people look down at your belly obviously wanting to ask if you're pregnant or congratulate you maybe and in your mind you're thinking maybe I still am where whereas the other part of your mind is telling you the the rational part is saying you know you're not like you've lost this this isn't your path anymore so it's just really hard to reconcile the two and honestly I think it if you don't reconcile and you don't allow yourself to grieve and cope in the moment, it gets harder and prolonged. So one thing that I've learned over the years is to allow myself to feel whatever it is that I'm going through and be able to talk about it openly with people. Not everyone is comfortable talking about the details of their experience, but for me, that was the most helpful way to, to recover. It was your, like your coping mechanism. Oh, yeah, you're carrying around all this extra weight mentally. I mean, and, and it didn't hit you until the very, very, very end. Like, oh my God, this is a situation that I'm in. I mean, I, I, I just think you're so strong to be able to go through something like that and, and come out this positive bubbly person that you are because carrying around all that extra pressure and weight is draining. As a woman who went through her first miscarriage, how do you go about the thought of getting pregnant again? Did when did you guys discuss like, okay, maybe this is normal. This is our first miscarriage. It, it happens to others. The doctor even, you know, reassured you that it's normal. I, I don't think normal is the word, but it's common. It's common that miscarriages happen. How did you go about even trying again? Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, that's a great point. The fact that everybody kept reassuring us that this was common, that this could happen, that one in four of someone's first pregnancy could result in a miscarriage it made us feel a little bit comforted that, okay, this isn't something we did. And our doctor, she was amazing. She told us repeatedly, this is not related to anything you've done. There's nothing you could have done to cause or prevent this. So don't feel bad. This isn't totally uncommon. It's your first pregnancy. The next one should be fine. The few friends that I opened up to and talked to as well, um, they also kept saying, oh, we've heard that miscarriage is common. We've heard that it can happen. So we're sure that it'll be fine. Everyone kept saying, you're still young, like relatively speaking, you know, I wasn't past 35 where we know the biological clock really changes. So I think for that reason, it helped me put myself in the mindset that clinically, medically, I should be okay. And then from the emotional side, 
I really only got through this with dark humor. Unfortunately, that's my way of coping as well. I had just bought a pair of ridiculously, ridiculously expensive leather pants before our honeymoon. I only got to wear them one day on our honeymoon and I came back, found out I was pregnant. Immediately, I didn't fit, right? And going through the miscarriage for such a prolonged period, my body took months to recover and go back to normal size. And I told myself, maybe this happened so that I could wear my leather pants in the fall and winter. <laughs> I mean, you have to find ways to, yeah. like, you know, stay sane, yeah. I guess, to find the light and everything because it's super hard to go through something so traumatic. Like, a miscarriage is a loss. So it's like in any which way that makes you feel kind of back to normal, then yeah, exactly. And I use that humor, I think, to lift up my husband as well to make him laugh and like realize that, you know, even though this is so, so traumatic and so bad that we didn't have to let this weigh us down and define the rest of our family and marriage. So I knew that we were okay after four months to start trying again. So four months after the miscarriage, we were like, you know what, I'm getting older. We really, really want a baby. We really want many babies. Let's try again. It should be okay. All signs point to yes. So we tried again. And within two months, we got pregnant, alhamdulillah, um, with the second one. And again, we went to the doctor same doctor. We saw her. She was so excited for us. And she was so happy that we were able to get pregnant easily. And I think that's the other thing I kept telling myself, at least I can get pregnant. I know that I'm not infertile. I know that it's possible. That's a huge hurdle that so many other women have to face that I'm so thankful I don't have to. And I actually want to pause and talk about that if that's okay for a minute. I think it's something, one, I think women frequently tend to find ways to rationalize bad things in the world, bad things that are happening to them, because we're always told to just chin up, be strong. If you complain about something or you express your emotions in a negative way or you're sad, it can be seen as you whining or being weak or emotional or hormonal. And there's so much stigma attached to how women express their emotions. It really bothers me. Um, Second, with miscarriage and fertility especially, there's so much stigma around um, talking about your ability to get pregnant, especially when there are couples who can't even get to that point, regardless of what happens once you get there. So I didn't want to be seen as negative or emotional or ungrateful. So I think that's the other thing that propelled me to, to keep moving forward and try again. I didn't want to be seen as weak. I didn't want to be seen as ungrateful. I wanted people to know that I was optimistic and hopeful and positive and that I appreciated the fact that my body could get pregnant. Why do you think it's such a taboo thing to talk about in our community when it comes to um, dealing with miscarriages and IVF and being infertile? Like, I think it is because, like you said, as women, we have to be strong. So in order to be strong, we have to suppress everything that we're going through. And I find that to be the opposite of strength, to be honest. I do, too. I totally do, too. I remember when I was growing up, and I hope this isn't TMI, but when Go ahead. <laughs> I had really severe issues with my menstrual cycle growing up to the point where I was in the ER once every two or three months from issues related to ovarian cysts and inflammation and infections and pain. And every time I was upstairs in my room, crying my eyes out in pain, my mom would say, don't tell your dad you're on your period. Don't tell him that's, you can't just tell him you ate something bad. I'm like, it's my father. I should be able to just tell him like he understands we're living in the modern world. Like he should understand and be okay with the fact that his daughter has a natural biological process she's going through that 
is causing her some challenges this month. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We don't normally talk oh. about our periods in front of our brothers or no, anything no, like that, did. but they know it ha- they're going to one day be married and they're going to one day have a wife who has a period. Yeah. So it's like, might as well like why get them educated. Them? Yeah. Why surprise them? And when it came to your miscarriage, was this something that your mom probably also, did she ever tell you like, Hey, don't discuss the fact that you had a miscarriage with other family members or how did that go? Yeah, that's the same thing. The same exact mentality. Even before marriage, you know, any type of health problem you had, don't talk about it even with your relatives in case they say something to someone and then someone doesn't want to marry you for that particular reason. And I think they had the same reaction after my miscarriages. They kept saying, don't talk to anybody about it. That'll make people think there's something inherently wrong with you, that it's something that's wrong with you as a person, as a woman, as a female And this is why maybe when it took you so long to get married or for whatever reason, they just, it's really, I just think it's a really unhealthy way to, to raise your kids and to connect with your family and community. I think our generation is going to be the generation that's, we're more, much, much more open. I mean, you could see on Instagram all day long, people are opening up more about the issues that they're having in their life, the hardships, the struggles that they face, because I come from the same exact family mindset as you, Pri, where, yeah, if like there's something wrong with you or there's something going on, do not say this in front of other family members, because I think right away we equate with who we are to marriage. So, so in a way, if there's something wrong with you, you're defected, nobody's going to want you and nobody's going to marry you. And what am I going to do with a daughter sitting at home all day long? It's so interesting to hear that you had that same experience because we do, I mean, that's our life we hide the negative stuff when we only portray the, the positive things. And I think that's why so many people have um, mental health issues because they're thinking like everyone's lives are so perfect, but mine sucks. I have this, this, and this wrong, which is so un it's untrue. I mean, everyone has issues. We're just not portraying them as often. And like Dunya said, with social media, I think our generation is going to be the one that changes that dynamic completely. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, same. I agree. So now you're four months later, alhamdulillah, you're pregnant. How, where are you now? What, what happened with this pregnancy? Yeah, this one, I was about to turn 33. Uh, Actually, I might've been 33 when we found out and I thought, okay, we still have time if this one works. Actually, I didn't even think if this one works. I thought after this one, we'll still have time to have at least one more. So my dreams of having five babies had quickly dropped to four when I got married at 31 And then they dropped to three when I got pregnant at 32 for the first time. And now that I've had a miscarriage, I'm like, okay, two. I will be so, so happy with two and maybe we'll adopt one. So that's where my mind was when I found out about this pregnancy. But I think my husband and I, again, got so excited. For some reason, the last thing we thought of, again, was miscarriage as a possibility. Everyone we talked to said, miscarriage is so normal in the first one. No problems going forward. You're totally fine. Your health is okay. You don't have any reason to believe this could happen. So we went into the doctor again, just, hey, Dr. Marco, guess what? We're here again. We had a positive test. Can you confirm? And she was so excited. She confirmed with ultrasound again. She did the blood work. And again, she said it's a little early. We don't see the heartbeat right now, but I'm sure it'll be fine when we you come back for your seven or eight week. Um, so then we ended up going back a couple of weeks later again. And at this point, I think we were there at nine weeks, actually at nine weeks, same issue. She just looked at us and she was like, I, I I don't even know what to say. I am so, so sorry. There's no heartbeat again. And this time it was different. Um, both for me and my husband, 
I just started crying right away. I was in disbelief. I was in shock. I didn't believe it. I was feeling betrayed. I thought everyone has convinced me that I have zero reason to worry. Nobody has talked to me about the potential for miscarriage, why it could happen, who it could happen to, when it could happen. What are some of the things I could do in my life to potentially get to a healthier physical state before I get pregnant to minimize some of those risks? Just all these things were going through my head between the disbelief and the the anger. It was it was quite different from my first reaction with the first miscarriage. And this time I couldn't drive home. I was just crying too much. So my husband drove us. He was totally numb. Like his face was just expressionless and crestful. Like he was just ghostly white. We got home. And again, at this point, we had not only made decisions to list our apartment, which we had already done, and look for a new place and found a place to make an offer on. We'd also started thinking about finding a new job, something that gave me a little bit more stability, a little bit less pressure. So I'd been interviewing at all of these places and suddenly like everything has to be on hold physically and emotionally. I won't be ready for another big upheaval or big change in my life. And this is the second time we've gone through this as well, not just the physical and emotional stuff, but just the practical life stuff you put on hold. Like you have so many plans again and everything just stops. The whole world stops and you have to reset and go back to zero, which is actually like negative going back several months rather than just starting back to where you are that day. So it's just a lot to deal with. It was a lot to deal with. And I didn't even know who to turn to at that point. Again, I had a few very close friends I talked to about the first miscarriage. And when I reached out to them about the second one, their responses, you know, as well intentioned as they might have been, not having experienced anything like this themselves or not having known people who had actually gone through it personally, but just having heard of friends of friends, again, their their response wasn't the type of support I needed. And I couldn't find that in my close group of friends or in my family members. So it really made me feel isolated. I felt so alone. I just felt like I had nobody who understood what I was going through. Um, even my husband, obviously, he was so supportive and he was going through it emotionally as well. But I had to bear the physical brunt on top of the emotional piece. And nobody realizes until they've been through this how physically challenging it is for your body to go through that. It takes anywhere from three to six months to physically recover from a miscarriage and have your physical body, your physiological system with your hormones go back to normal, your physical appearance, being able to wear normal clothes again, um, and then just all of the emotional you know, aspects of it as well. I want to thank you, Brady, for being very open and honest about this, because I think we always end a miscarriage story with, okay, they lost the baby, but we rarely talk about the after effects of losing that baby. And you mentioned that, yeah, other than just the mental health aspect, there's also that physical aspect. As a woman, your body is just changing and it's it's painful and it's not... And you don't know what's coming next. And you're also dealing with another loss, a second loss. When it comes to loved ones, this is something that I struggle with. How, as a loved one, do you expect them to approach you? What's the best way that they can approach you when it comes to just you dealing with a miscarriage? What would you like to hear and what would you like for them to do for you? Because I would like to know because this is something that you said is very common and is true. And I don't want to be that person who is dismissive or just brushing it off. So what would you expect out of them? I'm so happy you asked. This is actually my favorite part of the conversation to talk about. 
As I went through it, I learned what works best for me in terms of being able to support others and get the support I needed. So I think, again, telling, I'll I'll start with things not to say, or maybe some of the big things to avoid saying to someone going through this. Don't tell them that you'll be fine. At least you got pregnant. I laugh because I told myself that. That's how I coped through the first one. But again, I think it was putting on that mask and forcing myself to feel like I was okay. But really, at the end of the day, that's not the best way to, to support someone. Yes, they can get pregnant. That is a blessing in itself. But the fact that they can't sustain that pregnancy, it doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it any better. So I would definitely um, avoid saying things like, at least you can get pregnant or you know, anything about complaining about your kids and saying, be lucky, you don't have to deal with this. So avoid those types of things and maybe focus more on just really letting your friend or your loved one know that you're there for them. You don't have to say anything more than I am so sorry you're going through this. What can I do to help? Honestly, like those two statements, if you said nothing else at all, they're so powerful. I can't tell you how much it means to the person going through it to hear that. I'm so glad you asked that, Dunya, because that's so good to know. I mean, so many women are dealing with this. But I kind of want to backtrack to something that you said a little bit earlier about not knowing anything about miscarriages. And it's because no one talks about it. That's why I'm so proud of women like you who are sharing their stories and saying, hey, I wish I knew this two, three years ago. I wish I had this knowledge. And I'm like I said, I, I keep saying this, but thank you so much for sharing your story because it's helping so many women around the world and so just, thank you yeah and just like you said Pri, sometimes i think as outsiders who are you know seeing a loved one going through a miscarriage i think we overdo it sometimes we feel like we need to uplift them but while, when we're uplifting them we say the wrong things because like yeah that's something maybe i would have said oh at least you can get pregnant how i would have never known that that's something very detrimental to say to somebody that just went through a miscarriage you right. know or just like like you said like complaining about your own life and everything so the best thing and it's so true is just asking that one question and this is a universal question anybody can ask just like how are you feeling how can I be there for you and that's it that's That's all it takes yeah absolutely I think it applies to more than fertility miscarriage like my friends who are going through you know cancer diagnosis or loss of a family member like anything or loss of a job as you mentioned earlier just letting them know that you're sorry that this happened to them one it validates that their experience is painful and it's something that they have to figure out how to cope through. Their emotions are valid. That's the biggest part, just letting someone know that you recognize that. And then two, that you want to be there for them in whichever way they need. It just makes them feel like you really care and that they have someone to lean on. So now you're at this point where you've had those two miscarriages. Were you guys still planning on having kids or where was your mind in that moment? Yeah, I think um, I was really lucky again to have such a great doctor. As optimistic as she was about everything, she also recognized that this isn't normal. Given again, my health profile, everything that we we did in the family planning process between my husband and I, everything seemed like we should be okay and you know had a green light to pursue a family. Now that this has happened twice before I'm technically in the high risk group, which is women over 35, women with, you know, PCOS or other types of health issues, we knew that there could be something wrong. So rather than trying again naturally and risking this, we thought, let's try speaking to some fertility specialists. So the first thing we did was see a high risk maternal um, health doctor at her practice who recommended we consider IVF or fertility testing. 
So at this point, I wasn't technically infertile because I could get pregnant. It was more of an issue that I couldn't sustain a pregnancy. So we decided to pursue a bit more of an aggressive route and go to a fertility clinic um, where they typically specialize in IVF, which we'll get to in a bit because we had no idea what that was going in. Definitely we'll talk the about opposite. the misconceptions <laughs> of IVF yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, so we went in just thinking, okay, maybe they can pinpoint what's wrong with us. You know, a lot of people might have a blood clotting disorder where they take baby aspirin for a few weeks and they're okay. They can get pregnant and stay pregnant. Some people might just have a hormonal imbalance, like really high or low progesterone levels where they take supplemental progesterone and that can help them get pregnant and again, sustain that pregnancy. So we were just hoping and praying that I had some physical or physiological problem that we could answer, treat medically and, you know be on our way. So when we first started, we thought it'll be a few weeks, maybe a couple of months of testing and we'll figure it out and then decide how best to get pregnant. It took almost 11 months of testing. This required going to the fertility clinic or other specialists four to seven times a week for almost a year. It was so disruptive. And thankfully they had really convenient hours before and after work and on weekends, but I spent the next 11 months living at work and at the fertility clinic and at the doctor's office. Initially, they couldn't find anything that was the standard cause of miscarriage for us. Genetically, our karyotypes were matched, so we didn't have any genetic issues between my husband and I that could result in a miscarriage. I didn't have any hormonal imbalances. My uterus, the physiology looked, or sorry, the physical structure and anatomy looked okay. So there weren't any anatomical issues to correct surgically. None of those issues were what caused our miscarriages. So now we're starting to fall into the unknown infertility bucket. Then they thought I had lupus. So I had to see a rheumatologist and immunologist for about three or four months. Alhamdulillah, I did not end up having it, but I did have a version of it. I had discoid lupus, which they didn't think was the trigger. Um, they did a lot of tests of my immune system to see if maybe when I was getting pregnant, I had an autoimmune issue that could be attacking the fetus and rejecting the pregnancy. So there are all these things that you don't even think about that are related to fertility that can be the cause of someone's problem. And this made me realize that when I was starting to go into my second pregnancy, I wish I had waited and done some of this testing before. One, it could have saved me a lot of time in terms of figuring out what's wrong with my body, with my health, to help prepare me to have a healthier second pregnancy and maybe prevented having a second miscarriage. Maybe when I was physically in a good place to get pregnant the next time, it would actually survive. Again, I was in my mid-30s, which isn't a trigger in the U.S. based on our guidelines. You have to be over 35 before you're considered high risk. But I think now, as you mentioned earlier at the beginning of this conversation, women are waiting longer and longer to get married, to start families, to get pregnant, putting, you know, whatever it is, life, life comes, you know, at you in different ways. You might want to pursue your career, your maybe you just want to wait until you're older and travel the world, which is all of these are totally fine to do, but we are waiting until we're older and having a baby in your thirties is completely different than having one in your twenties. It's not just a matter of having fewer eggs available or a lower 
anti-malaria and AMH count, which is a signal that, that you might have infertility, but it's also the quality of the eggs. That's something I didn't know about going into my fertility testing. They're not just looking at how many eggs you have, what does your uterus look like? What do your hormones look like? But they're also going to need to look at the quality of your eggs, which they can't do until you go through something like IVF. If I had done all of that earlier, I may have recognized that I don't have good quality eggs. I don't have that many. Um, I might need to do IVF instead of getting pregnant a second time and a third time and losing those. So that could have saved me a lot of time and heartache, I think. That, thank you for that because that is super helpful and I think that's something that we really just like brush over and age does play a factor in this stuff and in the most generic term you could say is yeah your biological clock is truly ticking and there's things that I didn't even learn until like I did this podcast with other women that, that you are born with a certain amount of eggs you don't get more eggs as you age or anything like that you actually they, they decrease I don't know if I'm right I hope I'm right yeah, when it comes yeah, to that but I just yeah. I know for a fact you have a certain amount of eggs yeah. when you're born and that, those are your eggs and that's it and and I did not know that there's such a thing as even seeing the quality of your eggs. All I thought is all that matters is your egg count. That shows how many chances you have at getting pregnant. We don't know this it's stuff. It's so sad we that don't. we don't know this stuff. No. Like it's, no one taught us this stuff. I mean, this yeah, is helpful, it's but it's scaring yeah. me because I'm 30 and in a couple months I'll be 31. And then, like you said, life comes at you. I don't know where you're thir- You're in your mid thirties and it's like, the big family that you wanted is not going to probably, you know, not going to show it does yeah. happen, but it, maybe it won't, you know, it won't happen. That is really interesting. And do you recommend that? And I think this is, this has been recommended before. Like we should do these fertility tests. I think when we first get married, I think, like you said, we're very confident and I can get pregnant. People get pregnant. This is normal. My husband and I, let's enjoy ourselves. Let's take a year off and wait. Maybe as soon as you get married, we should be doing these fertility tests or like a lesser version of your fertility test. Yeah, I didn't do that when I got married. Yeah. That was not something that was Nobody even really brought does. up. Yeah, and again, yeah, so it's, I've been really proactive about encouraging women to seek some sort of medical advice or opinion about their family planning process as early as early in the process as they can. Like, if you feel like, one, there might be something wrong with you, if it doesn't feel normal to you, it's not normal. I don't care what the guidelines say. If they say you have to have three miscarriages before you're considered truly having chronic or recurrent miscarriage or before you're considered infertile, when you're having two and there's no other reason for it, that's not normal. I don't care, again, what the statistics tell you. If it doesn't feel normal for you, you don't have to do anything aggressive necessarily, like do IVF or you know, go to the best expert in the world on maternal fetal health, but you can have that conversation with your doctor and just say, hey, these are my concerns. Given my age, given whatever, you know, what do you recommend? What are some options? What are things I should know about? What are some things I can do to improve my chances of having a successful pregnancy? You know, like you mentioned, there are things in your diet and your exercise. Again, it's not going to change a genetic issue or if you have a true physiological issue. But for women like me who ended up having unexplained infertility at the end, changing how I ate, like reducing my caffeine intake later on in my later pregnancies, all of those things had a huge positive impact, but I never would have thought to do them. I was just told, you're fine. You can do whatever you want. Do everything normally because you're okay. Or if you know, you're in your 30s and this is your first pregnancy, given the fact that a lot of people in previous generations would have their first pregnancy earlier in life in their 20s, they might have a second or third pregnancy in their 30s, which is common and normal. 
But until you have your first successful full-term pregnancy, your body isn't going to react the way it will at a younger age. Yeah, just like you said, you have that one pregnancy doesn't guarantee that down the road you're going to have another successful pregnancy because there's a lot of factors. It's good to know. Um, so now you've talked to someone about IVF. Was it something that you guys considered doing right away or is it something that you guys kind of like slept on? Yeah, this is something that we talked about for a few months. So when we first went in, we thought IVF is what rich people do to make designer babies. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's what I thought. Yes. That's what I thought until I did this um, episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Honestly, we were like, "That's the lazy man's way to get whatever kind of baby they want, pick the eye color, you know, all of that stuff. If you have like viable male or female embryos at the okay. end of it, you can choose which one you want to implant. But yeah, I don't. I, but I honestly didn't think that. I was like, oh, this is someone like some rich couple who's going to go in. Or like, I want a baby that looks like this. I want him to be born on this day. I thought it was just designing your life how you wanted it. I had, I had no idea that it costs a fortune. It's physically invasive as like F. I'm sorry. Like it's just the most insane process to put your body through. And emotionally, it's just, it puts you through a roller coaster that feels like it's never going to come up to an end. Yeah, so we started talking to our fertility specialist at the IVF clinic about IVF as an option. Given that we couldn't find any other reason for why we were having these miscarriages, there's nothing they could do medically. Even she, um, as aggressive as she was with getting her testing and any treatments done, she was also very cautious and honest with us. She told us, hey, look, IVF is typically for people where, one, we either know that they cannot conceive on their own. So we do whatever we can to try to help them develop enough embryos or eggs and sperm or whatever the issue is. Or it's for people where we have an identified cause that we can kind of work around or circumvent with IVF. For you guys, there's nothing that we say that could guarantee IVF would work for you. So it's a really physically, financially, emotionally turbulent process, something you need to think about very carefully before you decide to do it. So it took us a few months of deciding. We got to the point where we were finally like, you know what, maybe this is the only way to do it. And then alhamdulillah, we got pregnant again, somehow, naturally. Naturally, not IVF. Naturally, not IVF. This is So this would be the third pregnancy before, yeah, third. okay. This is the third pregnancy. And this one, I think we were a little bit more cautiously optimistic, but we were still excited. We still thought, hey, we got pregnant. They couldn't find any reason for why we couldn't get pregnant or stay pregnant before. So we should be okay. Fingers crossed. Inshallah, like this one, again, third time's a charm. We should be fine. Same doctor, go back to her. She's as excited as ever. They see a heartbeat really early and we could not believe it. We're like, oh my God, alhamdulillah, there's a heartbeat. This one's going to work. This one's totally good. Everything measured as perfectly as you can imagine. The heartbeat, the amniotic fluid levels, everything looks beautiful. We went back for, at this point, we were doing weekly ultrasounds because we were considered in a high-risk group at that point. So every week from, I think, week seven until week 10, we were going in. Everything looked beautiful. The baby was growing exactly according to the right size and measurements. Heartbeat was strong as ever. Then I had an 11-week appointment. Everything looked perfect. And then 11 weeks and two days, I was about to travel to San Francisco for an interview with the job I'm at currently. And I just had this bad feeling. I said, I don't want to go and put my body under all the stress and pressure and potentially negatively affect this pregnancy. Let me just go in one last time the morning of my flight. 
to do one more ultrasound just to make sure that at least before I go, the baby's okay. And I went in and the doctor just looked at us and started like screaming, like yelling profanity, saying like the F word repeatedly and started crying her eyes out. She was like, I can't believe this. I don't know what to say. And she was just so, so sad. She was actually like almost hysterically crying. I got off the exam table at one point and went and gave her a big hug. And I started telling her, don't cry, Dr. Marco. It's going to be okay. We'll get through this. We'll figure this out together. You are so strong, Pri. You are so strong, girl. I just, she, her compassion, her emotional response. Oh my gosh. That's the one thing that still makes me cry every time. Sorry, I talk about this. Okay. Like, Take your time. She just made me feel like somebody really, really cares and wants this for us and that it hurt the fact that it hurt her so much that um, it wasn't happening made me feel like one, we do deserve this. We do because she wants it for us. There are people out there who really want this for us. And two, this isn't normal. And it's okay for me to feel that way and to feel upset about it. Like it validated my, my feelings that I'd suppressed for the last two pregnancies and losses. And yeah, everything that you put your life on hold for, as we talked about before, and my husband and I were trying to move out to California for at least two years at that point. I kept looking for jobs in between pregnancies. The moment I would get close to something, we found out we were pregnant. So we would cancel all of my job seeking, all of our move plans just to keep some part of our life stable to support a family. And at this point, I was like, you know, I'm going to go get on this flight. I'm going to come back in a day and a half and we'll have our DNC the morning I get back. So alhamdulillah, I see this also as one of those things where um, there's a blessing in disguise. Everything happens for a reason. If that baby looked healthy and viable at that ultrasound, I probably would have been too scared to get on a flight and risk a trans, um, you know, transcontinental flight, a 10-hour interview process, and another flight back with a red eye, worried that it would put too much stress on my body. And I probably wouldn't have done the interview and gotten the job that I have today that I absolutely love. And I'm so, so grateful for. We wouldn't be living in California today. You know, it's sad to say it took something like that to get us to push for some change in our life. But we really needed that change. We needed to get out of that cycle of miscarriage and loss and everything in our home in D.C. reminding us of of our losses. Well, yeah, it's constantly like a reminder. Like you said, it's kind of nice to start fresh. You know, we're going to this place where nothing bad has ever happened to us. And I'm just, I'm I'm stuck thinking about your doctor's response because you don't see that. I mean, doctors are very like sturdiest. They're very like serious. And to see her reaction got me extremely emotional. Like I am holding it in, but like that's When Peru told me the first time on the phone, yeah, it, it made me tear up because it's like, it's a beautiful thing to know that you and your husband are not alone in this struggle, that you do have somebody who is just as emotionally invested. Because I think at this point, you kind of felt alone because your loved ones were understanding your predicament, what's going on. But here's your doctor who's almost kind of like an extension of your family now because she's somebody that you are visiting often, somebody who knows your struggles, knows everything from the medical aspect and from the personal aspect. So it's it's really hard. And yeah. I think these stories, I mean, yeah, we're saying these stories, but they're very heavy stories and it's not easy. And you're kind of almost like reliving that day again. And I apologize if we brought out those emotions again, but it's so beautiful that you are sharing this with us. And one more thing I want to comment on is just subhanAllah, like sometimes we can't make sense of the certain things that happen in our life. And like you said, like, it's crazy to say, like, 
I lost this baby, but this it, it was because of like I needed to move to California and get this job. That was Allah's plan for you. Oh yeah. He wanted to get you out of that place to put you in a new setting to just clear your mind a bit because you're dealing with one loss after the other and this is not easy. And it's something that you said earlier, it's kind of your faith that got you through this. And I think if you didn't have that faith, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying now. You wouldn't have been seeing it in the perspective that you're seeing it in now. And I think that faith is so important. It gets us through so many turbulences. And I think your your example is just, it's a prime example of it. One last thing. I want to highlight your husband again. And I know you said some great things about him. And can you please like emphasize the importance of having a partner like your husband who is there for you every step of the way that helped you through this dark time? Yeah, it can make or break a relationship. You know, I've seen so many couples that are, so close and so strong fall apart because of family planning issues or loss in their family or some other traumatic event. And alhamdulillah, this just made us stronger and stronger. Like you said, the first year of our marriage where we weren't really planning to start a family immediately, we were just in that honeymoon phase and just having fun and enjoying life, traveling the world. And then this changed, um, you know, I thought this is someone who will always be really supportive of me, always positive and will have such a fun life. But I never knew how much he would feel like the anchor to everything in my world. Like he is just the most stable part of my life. He makes me feel so grounded, makes me feel like no matter what happens, I am not alone. I will not sink. He will always lift me up no matter what no matter how bad things get, he's not going anywhere. And that got me through it, I think, more than anything else, honestly. That's a beautiful way to explain it. Because, I mean, you can relate to this scene. Like, your partner is somebody like, yes, you're physically dealing with this. Your husband is also like, you know, he's there for you. He's also dealing with this. It's a loss for him as well. And I'm sure, Zaina, you probably had like some marital things, like any any issues. Hardships bring people people closer together. And it's like you said earlier. When you're engaged, you don't think about this stuff. You're thinking about the dates. You're thinking about where he's going to take you for dinner. Like you're thinking about all the superficial things. But it's really when you're in the prime of your marriage, when things start attacking you from left and right, that you realize like, Alhamdulillah, I chose the right person. Like I'm with someone who lifts me up and won't let me sink. And it's just so important finding that right person. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. We're not me- sometimes we're not meant to carry the whole heavy load of all of our hardships. We need that person by our side to carry at least half of it and to be there with us along this journey, climbing Absolutely. this mountaintop. And so we're at the point right now, Pri, you guys are in a new setting. You're in California. You have now gone through three miscarriages. Where is your mindset now? Was pregnancy just something that you have, I don't want to say given up on, but was this something that like at this point just terrified you? It, it, it holds a lot of trauma just to even say that word, just to get pregnant. I mean, I went through so much physical trauma from the first two miscarriages that I honestly didn't even think I could handle a third pregnancy. But when it happened after that nearly one year of testing, I saw it as such a blessing as a miracle that I got excited about it. I mean, physically, I was out of commission for months. I had never experienced this type of pain in my life with the first two and as many complications and hospitalizations I did. So at this point, having gone through three of these, we moved to San Francisco. I was ready to take a break and I told my husband that, and he was fully supportive. Again, such an important part of, you know, maintaining some level of sanity and happiness and health is having someone who's by your side and supports your decisions. 
I think he still honestly wanted to keep trying. I don't think he wanted to give up the momentum. I was 30, I was 36 when we moved here. Yeah. So, you know, I was officially in a high risk, low fertility group. We didn't stop trying necessarily. I just wasn't very proactive about it, but I did tell him that I don't want to focus on it. I really don't want to think about it. Like if it happens on its own now, alhamdulillah. And if it doesn't, alhamdulillah, like either way, I have to come to peace with whatever outcome I we have in our life at this point. But I've done everything I can almost to make this happen. And if it's not meant to be, then I need to not focus so much about it so that I can get to that place of being okay and accept whatever decision Allah has for us in our life. So we took a break and it was great. It was actually amazing. We, yeah, we got to reconnect as a couple, you know, for almost two and a half, three years. The only thing we ever did talked about or dealt with was tragedy and loss. And it was just draining physically, even if it made us stronger as a couple, as individuals, it just drained and sapped everything out of us. We lost all of our interests. You know, we disconnected from all of our friends. By the time we left DC, where I had lived for about 15 years, I feel like I had zero social life, even though my entire world, my community, family, everyone was there. When we came here, it was a breath of fresh air moving to San Francisco, not thinking about all the issues we had in our day-to-day life back home. Um, exploring a new city together as a couple, what, a place where both of us were new to was, I think, the best thing we could have done because now we're growing together in a different way, in a really exciting, positive way. We were outdoors a lot. You know, in D.C., I love, love, love D.C. I love the East Coast. I was in D.C., New York for several years, but... You know, you can only be outside like two weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall. <laughs> we can relate. We're from Chicago. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to the winter no. for sure. No, it was like the last blizzard we had. All the charm, quote unquote, of the East Coast is gone. I'm like, yep, I'm done. I'm, I'm cool. Like, I'm okay. I'm okay to move to California now. Um, yes, yeah, so it was great. Like, we were outdoors every weekend. We were hiking, getting physically really healthy and fit. And eating really well, just eating fresh fruit, everything locally produced. Um, I think it made a big difference. And I'd also read some studies about caffeine consumption. And given the stress of my job in DC and New York, where I was working crazy hours all the time as a consultant in healthcare and just the travel schedule I had, I was drinking probably like three or four cappuccinos a day. I was having so much caffeine. I had no idea how much it impacted your fertility. Once I read a study after my third miscarriage about the impact of caffeine and when we decided to to try again after moving here, I made a lot of changes to my diet and health. I think that Alhamdulillah made me position me in a much better place for IVF, which we began here. And so, wow. So you decided to do IVF at this point now instead of the natural way. I never, I didn't want to hear the whole like caffeine part because I'm like obsessed with caffeine. (laughs) But you, like you said, where you have to take these, you have to be proactive in this situation. Did you just raise your coffee cup? Oh yeah, I I love that. I love it. One a day. I guess we'll have to cut it down to one a day. But let's go back to talking about the IVF process. I we already talked about how we had this misconception, misconception of like you know, you think, oh, okay, you go to your doctor and say, I want, I'm going to do IVF and that, you know, they do the process and everything like that. And it's simple. It's definitely not like that at all. It's not an easy one, two, three. Can you explain the effects that IVF has had on your body? Yeah. Um, even t- deciding to do IVF was tough. The first time we went in again, totally like naive thinking, all right, we're going to go in. 
we're going to tell him what he wants. In a couple of months, he's going to give us a, a, an IVF baby in my belly. It's going to be cool. I didn't realize it had so much pre-work. The pre-work was terrifying. And I've talked to so many of my friends and women who now have been going through egg freezing and egg retrieval and IVF over the last year. And they're as overwhelmed as I was at the start of the process. And that's something I would love to talk about for a minute. If you can push past that, it gets so much better. It's not physically easier emotionally, but it gets better and manageable. In the beginning, you go in and you're told you have to do all these tests before you can even become eligible for IVF and know that you have a protocol. That took about six weeks. Halfway through the first time we went in, I got overwhelmed. I was like, I can't do this. This is too stressful on top of everything else I've been through. And I quit. I gave up. I actually got really stressed out and I gave up. Um, my husband got really sad. Like he really felt, he really felt not disappointed in me, but just disappointed that we might not be able to have a family because I was giving up so quickly on that. So then several, several months passed before we decided to do it again, which was last year when we started. And I went in and, um, yeah, the first time I started my pre-work, I didn't think I could get through it. I was overwhelmed again. And I kept reminding myself of the end goal. Like, okay, it's like five, six weeks of all this blood work, all these anatomical tests, all these ultrasounds. Get through this and then you'll be fine. Just take it one day at a time. When I did that, I thought everything was okay. And then I found out at the end of it that they had, at the very, very last step of the process before we were given a protocol to start our actual treatment and be on our way to making, um, hopefully, inshallah, a baby, they found a mass in my uterus. And it wasn't my doctor at the IVF center who identified it. He wasn't there that day. It was another doctor. And I was alone in the exam room. My husband was, um, I think he was out that day. Normally, he would go to me, go to all of my appointments with me. Um, and then they brought in two more doctors because they couldn't tell what it was. And that's when I started getting a little nervous. But again, I kept just telling myself, everything's going to be fine. So far, you've been normal. So far, it's been okay. You should be okay. Don't worry about it. And like having that mindset has helped me get through the IVF process, just telling myself until you know for a fact that there is something really bad to worry about, just don't think about it. Just hope for the best. And then um, it was, they told me that they didn't know what it was. They needed to show my doctor when he was back. If it was anything to be concerned about, he would call me that Monday. That weekend, I was in Nashville visiting my my mom, who was really struggling with my aunt's stage four stomach cancer diagnosis from that week. So I flew home right away over Mother's Day weekend to support her and be there for her. On the Monday, I didn't hear from my doctor. So I was so relieved. I was so happy. Tuesday, I was flying back to San Francisco. And in the morning, I was having breakfast with my mom when I got a call from UCSF. And there was a surgical coordinator who asked if I could confirm I was available that Thursday for surgery. And I'm thinking, I haven't started IVF yet. Don't you have to do like injections for a while before you can retrieve the eggs and do that surgery? So I I just asked her, I was like, yeah, what's the surgery for? And she goes, for the tumor in your uterus. I was like, what? That's crazy. I'm like, what? Like you're, my doctor hasn't even called me. What's going on? I was so stressed out. But again, as a woman, I had to put on a strong front put on a smile, be there to support someone else in my family, my mom who was going through something difficult and just pretend like I was okay. And 
I think we just do that too often as women. We just put on a smile, ignore what we need to do to take care of our bodies and our health and our emotional needs. You know, it's it's too much sometimes. So I came back and had the surgery, alhamdulillah, a million times over. It was benign, but I was still scared and it set me back. I had to take um, a chemotherapeutic for two months after that every day, an injection to prevent any further tumor growth, even though it was benign, just so that we didn't have that complication to get me through an IVF cycle. At the end of that, we were finally set to go when they found lumps and nodules in my thyroid. And that was another (laughs) unexpected shock. So I'm like, at this point, I'm like, okay, every time we go through one crazy hurdle, another one hits. And honestly, like, you know, I've been so strong all those years. I think that was kind of my breaking point where I just started crying. Like, I just don't think, I, I think this is my limit. And I told my husband, I was like, I really don't think I can keep going with this. Like, this is insane. My body's clearly saying like, stop, everything's just breaking down. And I think physically and emotionally, I've had my first breakdown in in years from all of this, um, all of these experiences. And again, seeing how sad he was at the idea of not having the opportunity for us to have a baby just forced me to kind of muster up as much strength as I could and go through one cycle. I told him, okay, I'll do one IVF cycle. And I also said to myself, as long as I know that everything happens for a reason, Allah has our a, a beautiful plan for each of us. However, we still have to do our part and do whatever we can on our end to achieve our goals. And we can't just sit back and say it'll happen if it's meant to be. I think it's a good balance, a really beautiful balance of what's meant to be versus what you can do on your own. So I said, I'll do my part one cycle. If that doesn't work, then khalas, like I know that it's not meant to be and I've done everything I can. I can rest in my grave like peace at peace. So I did the cycle, had no idea how hard it was. Several injections every night that you self-administer in your stomach and for the first cycle. It's very grueling. Mine was, I think, five weeks of daily injections that were increasing in the strength with the dosages of the medication, super, super painful. But at the end of it, you go through and you get the opportunity, inshallah, to retrieve some eggs that may or may not get fertilized. Alhamdulillah, we we got a few out of the first cycle, which we were told was almost impossible. So again, I was like, Alhamdulillah, this is a miracle. Like, this is just Allah rewarding me for my effort and having faith in Imam and putting in my hard work. And then um, we ended up doing two more cycles after that because we didn't have enough viable, genetically viable eggs um, to ensure that we could have one successful pregnancy. And at the end of the third cycle, we transferred one of the embryos. And I cannot believe that I sit here today, 38 weeks pregnant against all of the odds. 39 years old. <laughs> I'm so, 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 so happy for you, Pree. Like, I'm like, I have goosebumps. Like, as you were saying that, like, legit goosebumps. I'm so happy. This like, is, alhamdulillah, yes. alhamdulillah. <laughs> I still can't believe it. Like, literally, we're two weeks from delivery, and I literally am, like, looking down, I'm like, there's no way this is going to work. There's no way we're going to get a baby out of this. It's so hard to 
make yourself believe. Girl, you have fought like through and through. Oh I don't God. know anybody personally. I don't know anybody that has gone through three losses like that through an IVF and an IVF journey that was not something that you expected because you found out you had other health issues. And then it's just, it's so much all on you. And then there's not really much, many people that you can even confide in or somebody that can relate to what you're going through. So Alhamdulillah, you had your faith and that's what really, that was like your driving force. And you also said a story about your mom, how like your mom made a journey out of Afghanistan and you said something along those lines, like if your mom was that strong, like you're like, I think I can take this on. And sometimes we look at our parents and we see all that they have done and they also give us that strength. But I also think people are going to start looking up to you and looking at, you know, she did it and and then inshallah I can do it because I'm listening to your story and I'm like, I think I would have given up. Like, I don't know how I would be in that situation if I was actually in that situation, but just listening, you know, going through all the hurdles and everything that you've been through. I don't know if I could be able to take it, but knowing that there's someone out there who was able to come out on the other side, inshallah. I mean, it just, it gives me a lot of faith and it gives a lot of women a lot of faith to accomplish whatever they need to accomplish. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really hope it inspires people. And I've had so many people in my life inspire me to keep pushing through as well. Like one of my best friends just got diagnosed with breast cancer at my age, a year younger than me this year. And seeing how resilient and strong and beautiful she's been through this, Wow, someone can get through something like that, which is 10,000 times worse than this. Like, I should be able to get through this. And like you mentioned, my mom, like, you know, escaping from Afghanistan through the Russian war with two babies in her arms and walking out, walking for three weeks under bombardment to get out as a 22-year-old woman who was used to, like, drivers and luxury and life and going through that and coming to nothing and just holding her head up high and being such a beacon of strength and light. I look at that and women like that, I'm like, if they can get through those things, this is definitely something I can deal with and manage. This is what makes us beautiful, the hardships that Allah gives us and the way that we he gives us these hardships in order for us to transform them into silver linings. And I think that's what makes us beautiful, strong, resilient human beings. We are meant to share our stories. And I know we had a prior guest, Sahara, who said it beautifully. She's like, maybe not all stories are meant to be shared. It's when you're ready. And subhanAllah, we get to that point where we're so strong that we can share our stories and we can learn from one another. And you've taught us so much oh, yeah. in this one hour of just you yeah. telling us, all that you have went through. And at this point, like what have you learned through these trials and tribulations? Like everything that you have gone through and at this point where you're sitting down and alhamdulillah, you are 39 weeks pregnant. What have you learned from all of this? I've gone through a lot of different emotions and experiences throughout the years with this journey. But I've learned that sharing my story and seeing the impact it has on other women, inspiring them to pursue action for their reproductive health needs that has been the most helpful thing for me, knowing that it's hard for me to talk about some of this stuff, but it can actually help other women avoid, hopefully, inshallah, having the same experience. Maybe it can help them get to a healthier place faster in their journey towards parenthood. I've also learned that talking about it openly is okay. I know that our parents' generation still don't feel that way, but for me, it's made a world of difference even just selfishly, when I opened up on Instagram about my IVF journey last year, I was terrified. You know, it was coming from a place where I'm like, if anyone in my family sees this, I'm going to be shunned forever. <laughs> yes, that's so sad, but it's true. <laughs> but the reaction I got, the response, the support I got 
you know, not just from my friends and followers, but then suddenly this whole new community opened up to me who had been through these experiences too. Like I had people I could suddenly lean on and ask questions of who had been through it, who could advise me, who could guide me, give me um, some comfort, some, you know, some support that I couldn't get from other places in life. That made it so helpful for me. And then again, just reminding me over and over again, that no matter what happens, like we're never going to be tested more than we can handle in life. As much as that might not seem the case at certain points, like we are going to have a bad day where you're going to break down and you're going to cry and think you can't keep going. And that's fine. Embrace that. Let yourself feel it. That's the only way you can push through it. If you don't, if you close off, like I did after my second miscarriage, you know, it might make it harder for you to get to that place where you're ready to talk about it. It took years for me to be able to really open up and be transparent. I feel like if I had done this sooner, I probably would have healed much faster and maybe I would have even started IVF or been ready to face the the stress of IVF earlier in the process. I don't know if we can thank you enough for doing this and coming on and sharing your story and being open and transparent enough to do so. I mean, I am genuinely moved by your story and by your strength. Um, and I wish you all the luck and everything that you set your heart on. And, and inshallah, we get to meet this little bundle of joy soon, inshallah. Yeah, and inshallah, because by the time yeah. we will have this episode air, inshallah, inshallah, you will be holding your baby, your miracle baby. And it's 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 a beautiful it story. It is a miracle baby. It is. It is. It's a miracle Come baby. Down. And everything honestly happens through like the faith and uh, through Allah and it's it's amazing that it's amazing that for me to see how he has created such strong strong human beings like you are a superwoman you are somebody that has gone through so much and you're looking at us right now and you're smiling and it's it's such a beautiful smile because like it, it's just like your beauty and your faith is shining through and um again infertility issues like that and IVF it's very hard to talk about because it's not talked about often so when we have women like you and the many others that we have sat down and talked with it's 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 inspiring to see women open up because i know you're doing this for very selfless reasons and you want to be able to be an advocate for other women that are going through this thank you guys so much you guys are super inspiring for bringing um women like sahar basma myself like everyone you bring on it's just so inspiring for others to understand that we're all in this together this is a shared journey we all have very similar experiences and there are so many different ways you can, you know, cope or get support or find out how you can carve a better path for yourself through through these types of difficulties. Thank you for sharing all the advice that you have shared. You literally taught us so much. And Absolutely. I hope people really listen to this episode and take a lot away from your wisdom and all that you have shared with us. So yes. inshallah khair. I wanted to say an early congratulations to you. But before we let you go, and I think this is how I found you to be inspiring. And I, I read your captions. I, I found you through so, social media. And I love your page. And I love all that you have shared. And I love everything, how detailed you are and everything that you've experienced. But do you mind sharing your social media handles with our listeners so that they can also follow you on your journey from before having to deal with this and inshallah after having your baby? Sure. It's um, so on Instagram, it's the central steps, one word, S T E P P E S. So homage to the steps of Central Asia. Oh, um, I was from ask where you. my mom's yeah. family hails. Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And then um, my actual blog is www.thecentralsteps.com. 
Yes. And we'll definitely yes. link all of these. Um, we always do in our episode um, detail notes. So I really commend you for coming on here and we wish you the best of luck, Puri. We love you. Oh, thank, thank you guys for so the best. Much. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. Bye-bye. <laughs>
uh, like to to have to sit here and like listen to their stories and and ha- feel like man they they're going through so much and you almost feel helpless. That's yeah. why I'm saying it's hard on us. Clearly, what they're going through is a lot harder, a lot harder than us sitting and listening to it. But at the same time, I think it's hard for us to sit here. I'm like, man, I wish I could, you know, Step lean into in the computer screen yeah. and like hug her and tell her like everything's gonna be okay. But I mean. I'm just so happy for her. I'm loving the pictures that she's like posting online. It's just, it's almost like you and I said, we can now breathe and know that alhamdulillah, everything, you know, she finally had her baby. She had to go through complications, but I think Pari is going to take this one day at a time and she can share what she wants to share through her social media or whatever platform. And we were aware of when she was going into delivery and all that stuff. So we were holding our breath the entire time. And once she posted that first picture of that beautiful, mashallah, baby boy, I did just like, it felt like a, a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Yeah. Like, you guys go follow her. She's incredible. So open about what she's going through right now. And um, and I'm just so proud of her. And I'm so happy for her. Yeah, you guys, her social media is more like a blog. I feel yes. like there, she really does share intimate details about what she's going through, how she's feeling. And I feel like once she had her baby, it's not like, oh, that's it. She can relax. There's still like that postpartum part about right. having the baby, the afterwards part. And I feel like sometimes it's hard to talk about it. So she's doing it very openly um as always thank you guys so much for listening thank you so much for taking the time to you know support us uh give us the great reviews we really the reviews do help us out they a do, lot yes. to be honest because and it's not us when we say us i mean more so it helps like bump our podcast up where other women can come across our podcast and that's what's been happening where they'll say oh my god i came across your podcast because it was featured on my apple podcast app yeah. or something like that and it's like wow that makes me so happy that's how we get on those top charts it's it's up to you guys to leave those reviews and, and give us those five stars and yeah. you know push us up and when it comes to Pari please support her please send her send love her way if not to us send it to her um, I think every woman needs that that just support system and yeah. I feel like we live in a day and age where we can support one another over social media without having to meet to each other you know what yeah. I mean so as always thank you guys thank you for all the support and all the love and we hope to catch you guys next week see Bye. you soon